Thank you, guys. We are in a series in 2 Corinthians. Uh, the Apostle Paul has written about a third of the New Testament. This is one of his letters to a, a, um, a church that was found in Corinth, which was in modern-day Greece, and he's writing them about several different issues. We're calling this series called Enduring Faith. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me. If you don't yet have a Bible, we'd love to give you the gift of one out in the lobby. We have several, and uh, we'd love to give you that gift. Um, it's found in your bulletin as well. Our whole liturgy is found there uh, for you to take home, uh, to pray through during the week, to think about, to reflect on, to meditate. And you can make notes in there as well. So 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 18 is our, our passage this morning. And the Apostle Paul says this, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. As a culture, I think we're interested in transformation personal change. Like, I mean, if you think about it, many of the ads that I see on Instagram or, or even just people's posts are about personal change. It's about, about personal transformation. And so I feel like culturally we are very interested in that. I know I am interested in that. Uh, often, though, it feels like culturally that the kind of change that we're talking about is the kind that we can take with a pill or, or get quickly or, or something that's kind of overnight and you can have a before and after picture and then we're most interested. But Paul is talking not about the easy kind of transformation, not about the kind that, that can just happen overnight, but a true and profound change on the inside. And that is such good news for me, and it's such good news, I hope, for you, because what Paul is basically saying this morning is, and throughout 2 Corinthians, is that we can change. It's not easy. It does not happen fast. But that God, the Holy Spirit, and the, the primary subject of this text this morning is the Spirit, that God's Spirit is given one of the primary reasons to help transform the followers of Jesus more and more and more into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which for me just feels like the centerpiece of this whole letter, and I think perhaps it's because it's one of the first passages that I memorized when I started memorizing scripture, but Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. This is, like I said, this, I had this little box of scriptures that this guy that was meeting with me weekly at Purdue University was telling me about the Lord. I was growing. He was discipling me. I didn't even know what that term meant at the time, helping me become a disciple of Jesus. We would meet weekly, and we would memorize scripture together and talk about it, and I had, I can remember walking around Purdue's campus with this card in my hand saying, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. If anyone is in Christ, just walking around in, you know, like a bunch of Galatians 2, all these different passages that I was memorizing, this was one of them. So for me, this sort of stands out throughout this letter, and Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and, and that's a beautiful thing, but if you're like me, there's also a sense in which you say, but it doesn't always feel that way. <laughs> 
that the old is gone and the new has come. There's still this real sense, it feels like at times, where the old is still sticking around. Selfishness, bitterness, anger, lust, pride, evil desires, all these things that Paul talks about removing from our life, we still see. And so as a follower of Jesus, a guy who's been following Jesus since the 1980s, (laughs) that's good news that there's still hope for someone like me that's still been following, still been failing, still be struggling, still trying to endure in the faith that we can still be transformed and made new. One of his main points this morning that I'm taking away from us is this. We are, and it's a little trying to be catchy here, but we are transformed into that which we are most transfixed. He talks about beholding, beholding Christ. That's the way that we change. We are transformed into that which we behold the most, focus on, look at, that our hearts are most captivated by. That is the kind of thing that changes us, what we're transfixed on. And the three things we're going to see from our passage this morning is this, the when of true transformation, the who of true transformation, and the how. The when, the who, and the how of true transformation. The background, let me give you some background. In 2 Corinthians 3, 7, so just a few verses earlier in our passage, Paul uses a story of Moses that comes from Exodus 33 and 34 as a framework to discuss how the glory of Jesus is so much greater than the glory that came in the law. And he's mixing his metaphor because he's also talking about veils and how we with unveiled face go uh, and experience God's glory. And, And yet when people don't know Christ, their face is veiled from the truth. So all kinds of mixed metaphor. But what he's talking about is Exodus 33 and 34 where Paul went up to Mount Sinai not one time but twice to receive God's law to him, the Ten Commandments. The first time he brought the stone tablets down What happened when he came down? They had created an idolatrous golden cow, and in his anger, he breaks the tablets, and and so he's got to go back up. But in each instance, when he is with the Lord that way, in his presence, and receiving the law, when he would come down from Mount Sinai, his face was radiating God's glory to such a degree that he would have to put a veil, like, like think what people in the religion Islam do to cover the face so that people wouldn't be blinded. It's kind of like he got next to a nuclear reactor too close and started radiating so much energy that they couldn't take it in because of God's glory. And so Paul is taking that story and then making some ideas flow out of that. God's glory. God's glory was so radiant, so powerful, so amazing It was literally beaming off Paul in such a way that it had to be veiled. Now, this term glory and holiness, which are very similar in some ways, is a very difficult concept I've found as a pastor to describe. And if you think about it, how would you describe to a a small child God's glory? What would you say is God's glory? How would you describe that, right? I mean, think about that. What would you describe as God's holiness? I mean, it's hard to, it's certainly hard to put in one, one word or one idea. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and it, it means importance, it means weight, it means heaviness, but it also entails respect, honor, and majesty. It's this profound word, but I always re- remember from my seminary days that it means weighty, it means heavy, it means to 
you just feel the weight of someone in their presence There's, is their glory, glory. And one of the clearest definitions I've heard comes from uh, Pastor John Piper. It says this, glory is the public display of God's holiness, the infinite beauty and worth of God being made public, being made manifest, being made clear. So when Moses, right, comes and is seeing God in, in a revelation of God and receives the law of God, God's infinite power, majesty, holiness is all breaking out on him, and he is reflecting that glory. He's reflecting that. His beauty, his might, his power, the entirety of who he is was so powerful that it shone in his face like a mirror of the sun reflecting back on the people. And what Paul is saying, though, because he's, he's using Moses, really, as a metaphor for the law. And what he's saying is this. Moses, as great as Moses was, as great as the Ten Commandments were, the glory that was found in the law pales in comparison to the glory that is found in the Son, Jesus Christ. That as good as Moses was, as good as the Ten Commandments were, as good as the entire Old Covenant was, the entirety of the Old Covenant was pointing forward for us to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this glory pales in comparison. 2 Corinthians 3 is in the heart of our passage this morning. 7 through 9 says this. Or excuse me, it's, it's prior to our, our main passage. But If the ministry of death, and, and he's using that phrase for God's law, God's Ten Commandments, okay? If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end. So let's summarize what he thinks about this the Ten Commandments. On the one hand, he loves them because they reveal the need of a Savior to us, he says in Galatians, but here he's saying it is a ministry of death. Why? Because the law can't bring life. It can only bring condemnation, and it can only bring an understanding that I've sinned, but it doesn't bring healing. It's a ministry of death, and it's coming to an end, which, then he says in verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have been more glorious? given more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the law, the ministry of righteousness, the Spirit, must far exceed it in glory. The ministry of death versus the ministry of life. The law convicts us of sin. The law condemns us of sin. The law points to our problem, but he's saying, but the Holy Spirit has been given to bring righteousness. And where the Spirit is, Paul says in our passage this morning, there is what? Freedom. Where the Spirit is, there's freedom. There's freedom. There's freedom for salvation, and there's freedom for transformation. So there was glory in the law. He's not saying it was not glorious, even though he calls it a ministry of death. He's saying there was a glory, so much glory, that it reflected off Moses' face in such a way that it had to be veiled But in comparison is what he's talking about. But in comparison, the glory of Jesus is so much greater. Is so much greater. When we first moved to Arizona, my kids were pretty young. My oldest was five. My youngest was like less than two. And pretty soon after that, we did what almost every parent does today. Uh, When we did road trips, one of our very first road trips in Arizona, just going anywhere, we bought what? A DVD player. (laughs) 
I know, it's ridiculous, but we did, and everyone does, and so we, we bought this DVD player because we got tired of the phrase, what, are, are, we, are we there yet, over and over, are we there yet, are we there yet, you know, so we buy the DVD player, and we would put a movie in, or some show, or whatever, and it would play in the back, the, and, and that did one, it solved one problem, which was the are we there yet problem, at least on a couple three-hour trips, but it, 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 it created another problem, which was this. While there was glory in the minivan at the DVD player, right? The wiggles are glorious, let's all admit it, right? <laughs> they were missing the greater glory of Mount Humphreys and Four Peaks and Sedona and the drive on the Beeline Highway. As we're doing day trips all around this glorious state we've just moved to, we would literally like stop and say, look, look at that. And they, they didn't get it because they were so sucked into the glory of the Wiggles or SpongeBob or something ridiculous, glorious as they may be. But the glory that was outside in God's creation was so magnificent. And I know you've experienced this as parents with young kids. It's amazing. And this is what we all do, friends. This is what we do. Now I'm going to mix the metaphor even more and get to our last point in just a minute. But we are all people who are wired to glorify, are we not? We are hardwired for glory. We are hardwired for beauty. This is why no one, no one can go to the Grand Canyon and be unmoved. I'll say almost no one can go to the Grand Canyon <laughs> and be unmoved because why? There's such glory there. We're created for glory. And we are created to be founding, finding our hope and our, our joy in that which is most glorious. First of all, the win of true transformation for this morning. The win of true transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Prior to that, like, we're like the Israelites, which can only hear the law, but when it comes to Jesus, there's like a veil that is, that is keeping us from hearing it. He's mixing his metaphor to say that the Jews have a veil that has blinded them and keeps them from seeing Jesus as the Messiah. So a veil lies over their heart whenever the law of Moses is read. All they hear is the law, the law, the law. I must obey the law. And they're not seeing the intent of the law, which was to guide them to their need of Jesus Christ. That the law could never save us, that the law could never make us right with God, and the truth is that any of us that look to our law keeping, and we all do this, or our religion, or our obedience as our means of being right with God, in that moment, it's like a veil is being kept from us, and we're not seeing the glory of Jesus. So how does that veil get removed, he says? How does it get removed from our heart and our life so that, so that we have a, a life-changing experience where someone turns from being a, an old creation to a new creation? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul says it begins when we turn to the Lord. When we turn to the Lord. There's only one thing in life that will not just affect your behavior and fundamentally begin to change you from the inside out, and I believe that is when you turn to the Lord. This is what Paul is saying. Not just an exterior thing, not just an outward thing, but when you finally get to the place where you say, I will... I will now turn to the Lord. And to do that requires an enormous humility. Because every one of us, created in the image of God, and yet 
broken and fallen, and the human heart is bent towards building a life from God. This is what we see in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. You say this is your will. This is what you say is good, but how dare you define for me what is right and good? In the beginning, in the garden, Adam and Eve begin to say, I will build a life distinct from you. I will say what's right about life. I will say what's good. You know, you're holding out on us. You, you want to keep this knowledge from us of good and evil. We will divine, define what is good and right. And so in doing so, the human heart to turn to God, not just in some moment, but to actually turn, you must get to a place in your heart and your life where you say, I am tired of the lordship of my own life, of being my own Lord and Savior. I am tired of just trying to get enough obedience. I am tired of trying to say, I will be Lord and Savior. I will define it. Lord, I literally will open up my heart and my life to you, and I want you to be now the Lord of my life. This is what it means to turn. To turn to the Lord. And this is the turning point where someone can go from unbelief to faith, and what Paul would say is that is the moment where you, you now become a child of God and where the Holy Spirit begins to reside in your life and begin to affect this transformational process, to turn to the Lord. Do we only turn to the Lord once in our life? No. <laughs> we have to be turning. Our, our, our faith, our life of faith is sort of a daily turning, but it begins with the one turning, the ultimate turning of saying, no more, Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm so tired. And I remember when this happened to me when I was in high school, and, and I just got to this place where I was so tired of trying to be the Lord and Savior of my own life, and I turned to him. And then it's a series of turning. The next is this. It's the who of true transformation. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.17, the next verse, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. He says that true transformation begins when we turn to the Lord, and if you were just reading the Bible for the first time, you'd say, well, who is the Lord? And interestingly, usually in the New Testament, and especially in the Old Testament, the Lord would always be reserved in the Old Testament for God the Father, in the New Testament, ordinarily the word the Lord, Yahweh, is referring to the Father and then the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a very rare thing because in this passage, he's saying the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit is, there is freedom. So he's referring to the Spirit here, which is an unusual way to describe the Spirit because ordinarily the ministry of the Spirit is very self-effacing and he's always pointing back to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is literally flowing from the Son, and, and He is to glorify the Father and the Son, and there's this beautiful humility and dance within the Trinity where they're each glorifying the other. The Father is to constantly glorifying the Son, and the Son is glorifying the Father, and the Spirit is emanating from the Son and glorifying the Son and the Father, and there's just this beautiful humility, but we are Trinitarian. We believe the Spirit is the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the Lord, and he is the person that Paul is referring to where there is freedom. One of the professors at the seminary where I attended is a man named Ben Witherington III, and he wrote, wrote this, it is the Spirit of the Lord that unveils the human heart and lays it open to receive the truth and to gaze intently on 
the face of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is Paul's point in this passage, that we're being transformed as we gaze, behold the Lord Jesus. It's the spirit of the Lord that unveils the human heart and lays the heart open to receive the truth and to gaze intently on the face of Christ. And as you experience the Holy Spirit, and as you read about his ministry in the New Testament, you see that he is the one who draws us to Christ in faith. He is the one who gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. He is the one that removes the veil and walks with us daily to transform our hearts, to make us love God, to love our neighbor more and more, and to want to please him. Thirdly, is the how of transformation, of true transformation. And Paul writes in verse 18, and with we all, all who have had the veil removed by faith, by turning to the Lord Jesus, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The word for transformed is the word we get for metamorphosis in this passage. And it means to change the essential nature of something. Again, we're not talking about just surface change. A fundamental change. With unveiled faces, we now behold the glory of God in a way that Moses could never fully do because we have received the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his, in his coming, in his coming, we are now able to see through the word now and prior, you know, through a physical reality of being with him physically, able to see God face to face. And it's in his image that we're being transformed more and more into. The imago Dei is what theologians call it. The image of God. We are created in the image of God, chapter one of the story of God. We are broken and fallen, chapter two. And, and so while we have his image, it's, it's being diminished and, and needing to be restored. But chapters three and four is that God is redeeming and restoring us more and more into the image of God as we peer into the Imago Dei, the image of God. And in Jesus, we see the fullness of God. Hebrews 1, 3. That he is the exact, reputa- uh, <laughs> he is the exact representation and the full manifestation of God's glory that in Jesus, when we see Jesus Christ, we see the beauty, the power, the holiness, and the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus is fully God. And as we behold him, as we peer into him, as we transfix our eyes upon him, we see God in his fullness, but we also see humanity in its fullness, and we see the kind of person that we can become through the Holy Spirit transforming us. The Imago Dei, the image of God. We see God in his fullness, and we see humanity in its fullness. Jesus Christ was humanity in its fullest. Isn't that beautiful to think about? Since Adam and Eve, and since the fall, it's been a story of brokenness. My, my story is a story of glory and of brokenness, and so is yours. But Jesus, untainted by sin, untainted by the fall, fully loving God, the Father, and the Spirit, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, fully loving his neighbors himself, he is the full manifestation of God in his glory. He is the full manifestation of humanity in humanity's glory. And so we behold him 
and then we are transformed into his image more and more and more and more. The how of true transformation. Let's get practical for a minute. I think Paul is indicating here when he says that we are transformed one degree of glory to another. He's saying a couple, there are many things, but there's a couple things about it I'd like to say. One is that it will take place. That he who began a good work in you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, that's such good news. God's at work. Friends, brothers, sisters, he's at work even when it seems he's not. When there's so much mess, and there often is, he's still at work. So one degree of glory to another, it's happening. But the other thing I take away, and it's my point this morning, is this. It takes time. True change takes time. And kind of picking up from last week's message that the gospel is both grace and truth. We're going to start with truth this morning, cut some truth and then some grace. It takes time. Changing is difficult and it's hard and some things the Lord just removes from us when you, when you turn to him, the Lord literally just takes certain things and fundamentally changes you about them immediately. Other things take time. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with others. It takes time. The next thing is transformation takes persistence. It takes persistence. For some reason, God in his infinite grace and wisdom and sovereignty decided to not zap us into transformation, but to redeem us, to forgive us instantaneously, but then to sanctify us, to to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we're talking about over a lifetime. It takes time, and it takes persistence, and he's given us means of grace. Some people call them spiritual disciplines or formative practices and so forth, but they are the means, the vehicles. They're God's grace to us as a way to grow, and we need them and persist in them in order to consider and to experience more and more transformation. <laughs> I remember this conversation I was having with a guy a few years ago, and he was experiencing some transformation. He had been losing a bunch of weight, and I'm constantly gaining and losing the same 15 pounds, and so how did you do it? You know, I want to know. How did you experience this, this mini transformation? And he said, well, um, I'm only eating 500 calories a day. <laughs> and I said, oh, that doesn't sound like a very good plan, <laughs> like, but it was working. I mean, he was just shedding off the pounds right quickly, too, and so how did you do that? Well, I, I only eat 500 calories a day. I'm like, okay, well, that, that makes sense. How's it going? He goes, oh, really good, I'm fine. Except if I have to exert any energy whatsoever, I've got nothing, nothing in the tank. Of course, right? That's breakfast, man. I mean, that's like, and that's it, every day. So he's losing weight, but then try to exert himself at all, and there is no power, there's nothing there. If you don't feed yourself spiritually, and the Lord does not zap us into that, he says, here's the food, come. He calls us, his spirit calls, convicts, moves us. The community of God's people in the church calls, convicts, moves us. Let's feast on Christ and the buffet that he's given us as our power, amen? Not our own power, but the means of God's grace. You're doing that right now, even though it's Labor Day, and you could be in some beautifully piney, gloriously cooler temperature place. You're here receiving the means of God's grace of his word. Hearing the word of God, having your heart warmed by the word of God, singing hymns and songs and praying together with God's people. This is big. 
If you're just beginning your spiritual walk, this is huge, this is so important. If you've been doing it for 100 years, this is what we need. God's word, God's people, God's presence in his people and the singing and so forth, but the Lord's Supper as well. Most churches today don't talk much about that, but the Lord's Supper is a means of God's grace. We believe it's not just a memorial service, but the Holy Spirit will meet us here today as we feast on him and provide us spiritual sustenance to grow us. That does not literally become body and blood, but spiritually we believe the Holy Spirit's actually with us, empowering us, strengthening us. Paul says that. Transformation takes persistence. He's given us these means of grace. There's many more we could talk about. Do not, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, Paul says. Persist. I find if I walk away from the means of God's grace, it's amazing how cold my heart can become for God so quickly. If I remove myself from the means of God's grace, it's amazing to me how quickly whatever change I think has happened is removed. We need the means of God's grace. We need to persist in them. Third, so some truth, now some grace. It takes the Holy Spirit. Truth first, now grace. It, it, yes, persist, but ultimately, how do we grow? It's the Holy Spirit. He says so. He says twice now, it is the Holy Spirit, it is the Lord as we behold him, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We have to be willing to persistently admit your need, and one of the, the ways in which we grow in the Holy Spirit and we grow it all and be transformed is to turn to the Lord and to do that it's kind of like at AA meetings and stuff. You have to say, I'm powerless to overcome my problem, in a sense. I'm powerless. Oh, Lord, I will avail myself of your means of grace, but true, lasting heart change, that's your work. Lord, have your way with me. Holy Spirit, come. Do your work. Do your will. It requires the Holy Spirit. And then finally, I want you to do the hard work of thinking about what's going on in your heart right now because transformation takes beholding. This is what Paul says. As we behold him, as in a, a mirror, many translations say, and, and we are transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold him, as we behold him, as we behold his glory. We are transformed into that which we are most transfixed. <clears throat> transfixed, beholding. What are you staring at? <laughs> Me right now, but don't do that very long. There's no glory here. What are, you, what are you staring at in life? What are you focusing your heart on? What, what is your, your imagination captivated by? Where, when you can't sleep at night, does your heart and your mind run to? I don't care if you're an atheist or whether you've been a Christian your whole life. We are transformed by that which we are most transfixed. We are transformed more and more into the image of what we surround our life and our heart with. Whatever our heart is given to, it really, at this point, we're not just talking about the Christian faith, we're talking about humanity. Whatever our heart is captivated by, we become more and more like that, so be careful. Be careful what you're giving your heart to because it will transform you. If you worship and stare at things and pleasure and power long enough, right, and, and truly give your heart to say, this is my highest priority, this is what my heart needs, wants, desires the most, that will change you over time. It will. 
I've told this story many times. I'll tell it again, and it's to my own sadness that I have to share this story, but it was true. After I moved here to plant this church for God's glory, and I was largely motivated by that, but let's face it, anyone bold enough to move their family from Cincinnati, Ohio, and move here without knowing a single person, A, is a little crazy, right? And B, a little driven. And three, hopefully has some faith. And I think all three of those things were true. (laughs) Crazy, driven, and filled with faith. I wanted to see God's work. I did not start a church for my own glory, but at the same time, very driven, very competitive, and myself and other brothers in the, in the valley were planting churches at the same time. For a while, New Valley was expanding and growing and, and was really fun to go to meetings with other pastors who were planting at the time, and I would share, like, man, it's really growing. Things are happening. As a planter, man, that just feels good. Like, wow, I'm so good. People are coming to me, asking for advice. How do you do this? What's going on? You know, and then all of a sudden there's this other guy that's planting who's much younger than me and much less experienced, and, and he's coming along and like, oh, I, we can't get, like only 40 or 50 people are coming saying, no, I think it's gonna die. But then there's this month where he shows up at our meetings and says, we had 200 people last Sunday. I'm like, oh my goodness, two, that's 50 more than we had. <laughs> well, praise God. And then, and then the next month, we had 350 people there last Sunday. Really? My praising is reducing, and my, my uh, you know, comparison is starting to increase. And then the next time, we had 400 people. Next time, we had 500 people. The next thing you know, they have 1,000 college kids from ASU coming, and I have admitted publicly and to my brother that my heart was growing so in comparison, and I got so fixated on jealousy, even though I'm telling you, (laughs) that is not to God's glory. That was about me, and that didn't last super long, but the months that it did, it started to change me. I should have been joyous about what God was doing at our church, but instead I was playing the comparison game, and I started getting transformed and molded more and more into the image of somebody that was filled with envy, and that's a dangerous thing. And by God's grace, he showed me that through my wife, through other friends, and through his spirit, and just showed me the depth of what that could do to me. And by his mercy, I turned from that, and I've been freed, and I mean that. This was years ago about 10, to where now, friends, like, I want New Valley to keep growing and expanding, and I want, you know, plant more churches, do other things, like, I praise God for what we've done, but I am able to rejoice with other churches when they grow, when they, when, if their attendance is bigger, if they expand to God's glory, I am able to celebrate with them and to really join in to what God is doing around the city, and that has been by his grace, but be careful what your heart is focusing on because it transforms you. When I was on vacation with my children, I was thinking about why aren't we growing as much as this church? I wasn't present for my children. When I was home at night and couldn't sleep, I was robbing my body of sleep, but robbing joy from my life, robbing uh, emotional energy for my family and my own church. It was a horrible thing. It was transforming me into a different image. What we behold, we become. Now, the answer is turning to the Lord. Some of you need to do that for the very first time. You've never done that. You've never turned. Something's been holding you back. I don't know what it is. There's no greater glory in the universe than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
turn to him. Lay down your arms. Lay down all of your power and your own glory and turn to him and say, I'm tired of being my own Lord and Savior. Come to him by faith. He will receive you. He will love you. He will forgive you, redeem you, and he will begin to transform you. Turn to him. And others of us who've already turned initially, we, we need to continue turning. I just I told you the story of where I really needed to repent of something big in my life. We need to turn, all of us. It's a series. It's not a one-time event. Our lives are moment by moment a turning to the Lord. Turn to him. Even this morning, turn to him. There's power and transformation. Let's pray.